Hello, listeners. This is Dan Kowalski, host of the Alaska Story Project. The motivation and inspiration for this project is to talk with authors, scientists, artists, historians, fisher poets, and a colorful cast of characters who are both knowledgeable and passionate about Alaska. Storytelling has always been key to how we connect as humans, piquing our curiosity and deepening our understanding. Our podcasts are unhurried, so we invite you to settle in and explore with us some of the richness that makes Alaska such a special place. Without further ado, let's begin. Welcome, listeners. This is Dan Kowalski, and I have the pleasure of being in the studio with an author of a classic, Alaska Blues, more recently the Alaska Cruise Handbook and Alaska Cruise Explorer, and he's also uh, a map maker with a map that's available through Amazon called the Alaska Cruise Map Illustrated. It's with a great pleasure that I'd like to introduce to you author Joe Upton. Well, thank you, Dan. Looking forward to sharing some more stories this morning. Yes, well, Joe, so if we were to look at uh, your map or nautical charts of southeast Alaska, there are the uh, notable towns that most people are aware of, Ketchikan all the way up to Skagway. But if we were cruising up there in virtually any size boat, from the large cruise ships to the smaller ones to the Alaska State Ferry to... uh, a sailboat, one of the cruisers that uh, come up from south. It's notable that uh, for much of the landscape, there aren't many houses. You don't see much going on in the way of settlements. Uh, why is that, Joe? Oh, I, the first time I went up, it's like, look at all this gorgeous waterfront land, and the, and there's nobody there. And, and then slowly I realized that uh, you know, much of it is state land and federal land, and actually there's very little that's available for uh, people to buy or settle. But there's a few exceptions. We call them the outports or the roadless communities. These are places that started out as a really good fishing places and a good harbor, and they eventually became settlements. And uh, to me, I like to think this is sort of the old Alaska or the more genuine Alaska that exists in these outports. I remember from uh, our kayak trip back in uh, 73 that, uh, you know, we, we took the ferry to Ketchikan and uh, kayaked around there just to make sure that what we were doing was going to work. And then we headed out up north, and the next little settlement that we came across was a place called Myerschuk. What's going on there? What's uh, the story with Myerschuk? Oh, the chuck, it's like uh, pretty typical. I mean, here's a spot that uh, it was just this great anchorage. I mean, it's got a little tiny entrance that goes into this really, really protected harbor, and, um, you know, fishermen first used to anchor there because there was good fishing outside. And then there was a cannery around the corner in Union Bay, and some of the cannery workers built houses there. And then 
you know, in the early days, in the in the twenties and thirties, a lot of people didn't have gas engines, and so they rode facing forward, and, you know, with towing their trolling lines behind them, and they and they built tents on the beach, and uh, in those days. Myers Chuck had a bakery, it had a post office, it had a store, it had a school for a while. It was a bustling little place. And um, one story I remember, fishing boats first started having motors. They were gas engines. Now, today in our fishing boats, we have diesel engines, and you can run a diesel stove that you can cook food on and keep the boat warm. Well, you can't do that with gasoline because it's too volatile. So, a lot of boats had little wood stoves in there. And, and you know, firewood, dry firewood was really important. So the guys would, they'd cut, they'd cut their firewood and they'd have a little stack covered by a tarp right where they tied up. And everyone had the place where they tied up. And um, one time this troller comes in and he didn't have any dry firewood. And he was the first boat in and he looked around and he uh, he found a nice pile of firewood covered by a tarp, and he grabbed a couple of nice pieces of wood and took them in his boat. And pretty soon, there's smoke coming out of his smokestack, and he's happy. Well, then the troller who owned the pile, he comes in and ties up. And the first thing he does is check his wood pile, and he notices two sticks of wood missing. And he just yells up and down the dock, the worst thing in this country is a firewood rustler and they should be strung up just like a cattle rustler but uh you know today myers chuck uh you know fishing kind of slowed down the cannery in union bay burned and now it's just kind of a seasonal place people from ketchikan and and down south come up there it's busy in the summertime the bakery's open there's a little post office but in the winter time is only about uh 25 people there. So that's kind of the arc of many of these little outport communities. They were really busy in the 30s and 40s and 50s, and now they're they're much, much slower now. Yeah. Well, I have fond memories of uh, uh, Myers Chuck back in the day, and it was, it was curious that as we were paddling at about three knots up Clarence Straits, northbound Clarence Straits, uh, uh, we were pretty sure we were getting close to Myers Chuck, and then we were astounded where another kayak appeared coming out of the bay. And uh, this was a fellow named uh, Greg Rice, and uh, he had his dog on the bow of his kayak. And so there were now one, two, three, four <laughs> kayaks that went into Myers Chuck. And, <laughs> And we found it so hospitable that we stayed with Greg for a few days before we headed out uh, northbound again. Oh, not many kayakers in those days. We used to buy fish, and, and northbound, we would always stop in Myers Chuck, and there was a fish buying station there in the 80s, and uh, we'd come in 2 or 3 o'clock in the morning, and finding the entrance is just a a slot in the rock wall, you know, finding that entrance at night, have to be up on the flying bridge with the spotlight. And then uh, it was a gal named Donna Myers, and uh, she'd she'd wake up and we would unload, uh, we would take two or three uh, those big totes of ice and fish and then head north to town. Yeah, there you go. Well, uh, going north, if we think of Clarence Strait, big, wide, north-south body of water, 
further north and on Prince of Wales Island is a little place called Kaufman Cove. What uh, what's the story with Kaufman Cove? Oh no, you know that that's a little different because Kaufman used to be just a logging camp there. Okay, and um, there was uh, you know the logging camp had a little school. And there was some friends of mine, and and of course they couldn't get land there in those days, and uh, and so they built a float home. And the way you do it is you you take logs off the beach and you assemble it into a raft. And then he had a little sawmill, and then he started sawing the board, the logs into boards, decked over the raft, built a little house, and and that's how they live now. Float home life is a little different from regular life. Just, I mean, here's an example. Of course, uh, they like to smoke fish, so a lot of times your smoker's going. You got a wood fire, and you're and you're smoking your fish. Well, one of his big uh, fifty pound or two hundred pound propane tanks was leaking, and and he tried to shut that thing off to stop the leak. And he couldn't stop the leak, and he was worried that the the propane would you know would ignite because of the wood fire, and he didn't want to stop that because he was smoking fish. So he said, "Well, I just have to roll this thing into the bay and shoot a hole in it." And he was really a good shot, but this particular time his aim was off, and instead of shooting a hole in the tank, he knocked the valve off. And the gas escaping under pressure make, made that thing take off like a torpedo. And as he's there standing on the dock with his kids, this thing circles around and starts heading back for him. So he starts aiming at it again. And he said each time he got a bead on it, it would go underwater, really like a torpedo. And he was starting to get a bit anxious. And finally, 50 yards from the house, he got a good bead on it and blew the end off it. But not something that would happen around uh, around a regular house. Not likely at all. A moving target uh, yeah. with high stakes. Yeah. Now th- this 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 was a unique family. She was a a Haida, a native Haida, and she wanted her kids to experience some of her native culture. So they got a big cedar log, and she and her husband working with the kids, they built a dugout canoe. In the traditional way, by building a fire in it, and then and after the fire goes out, chipping out the charcoal and the softened wood until they had a real native dugout canoe, and the kids used it to go to school and to go across the bay to go to school. You think the kids like that? They wanted a nice Lund outboard with a big mercury on it, like the rest of the kids in the logging camp. They weren't very impressed with the dugout canoe. But of course. <laughs> and then and then the irony is as it has happened in many of these little uh, you know small outports the state realized that people needed land so they had a land sale and and uh, Ethel of the float home bought a piece of land beached the raft that the float home was on and drug her float home up to her new lot with a bulldozer built a foundation for it, and now her float home looks out on the bay where she used to live floating, and her neighbor is a swimming pool builder from California who comes up on vacation. <laughs> Which might be somewhat characteristic of how the 
demographic of Alaska is changing ever so slightly year to year. Oh, yeah. I mean, um, you know, the old settlers, the new people, and then, uh, yeah, the young people coming in, and then fishing slowing down, people trying to find alternative ways to make a living in the bush. Yeah. Well, from Kaufman Cove, if we were to continue following a chart or a map or continue uh, paddling or cruising north, we'd go through uh, Snow Pass, which is a fascinating place. Uh, tides run pretty good in Snow Pass, do oh, they not? Oh, yeah. And there's a, it just boils through there. And, hey, if you go through Snow Pass, look for whales because wherever the tide runs, it usually swirls herring up and uh, – Snow Pass is a is a good place to look for whales. Right. And then at the north end of Snow Pass, we come into Sumner Straits. And if we were to hang a left and head west, the next little settlement would be Point Baker. Yeah. Now, Point Baker and Port Protection, they're kind of unique because they're these two communities, each with about 40, 50 people. And they're only about, I don't know, two miles apart. So, uh, you know, there was, there was one – and they were both, you know, basically roadless communities. And um, here's a little story about how the dark winters can affect people. Uh, a friend of mine uh, and his wife, they were living in Port Protection. They bought some land there. And they were living on their boat, and they got really excited because they wanted to build a cabin. And – um we're going to order lumber from town. And when we – we were in our fishing boat. And when we left them in the fall, they were all excited. They had two little uh, two little children. And they were going to build their cabin in the wilderness. Well, while they were building their cabin, they made this small shack. I think it was 10 by 12 with only one tiny window. And that's what they were living in while they were building their big house. Well, the next spring, we arrived in our fishing boat. And we wanted to check on our friends, and we rode over there. And first thing I noticed, the woman was sitting on the beach, and it was quite odd. She had this odd posture, and when I got closer, I realized there was flies on her face, and she wasn't even swatting them away. She was almost catatonic. I mean, that winter in that dark, dark cabin with Hardly any neighbors while her husband toiled on the house during the day and she took care of the babies. It, it I mean, she never fully recovered. She, she finally had to go south. It's probably true with so many people in Alaska that uh, they would characterize some of the qualities of life up there as either on the edge or near the edge. It sounds like she might have been a little over the edge. It's just, uh, yeah. Uh, and at, at Point Baker uh, and Port Protection, we had a mail boat because in those days, in the 70s, there, was a, uh, there were a number of logging camps there. So there was enough business to keep a mail boat operating. And, and the mail boat came in on a, on a Thursday night in the middle of the night and dropped all the freight in front of the post office and any freight. And then so what that meant was it was like Friday morning was mail day. And first you'd see folks coming out of the woodwork that you hadn't 
seen for weeks because they lived way back in the bush and because mail day was also booze day. And so, you know, their, their booze came in with the mail or marijuana or whatever. And also it was ice cream day because <laughs> the store did not have a very good freezer. So if you wanted ice cream, you got there on Friday morning and you sat on the dock eating your ice cream. <laughs> that was your chance. And because the ice cream came to these outposts, these faraway places on the mailboat, and the mailboat had a freezer on it. Yeah, board. the mailboat had a freezer, yeah. yeah. And uh, I, did I tell you the story of getting my lumber? I don't think so. Well, when I was building a cabin, um, I ordered my lumber from, from a sawmill in town, and it came out on the mailboat. And, uh, you know, I was there to meet the mailboat at 2 a.m. in the morning, and I thought I would have them— uh, the, the lumber came all banded up with steel bands around it. I thought I would have them just lower it into the water, and the next morning I, I would tow the bundle around to my cabin site. Well, they lowered it into the water, and it kept going. It was so green. It was hemlock. It was so green it wouldn't even float. So I said, stop, stop, and, and I had them put it on the dock. And so we had to uh, uh, take it out to the cabin one skiff load at a time. The locals call it pond dried. Pond dried. Many of us have had some experience with pond dried lumber. <laughs> and uh, the uh, synopsis is it's really heavy. <laughs> and, and again, another thing about these towns is you're really dependent on float planes. Because uh, you know, uh, I mean, the, the the mail boat stopped in the early early eighties because there were fewer logging camps. So now you're dependent on the on the float planes. And about anybody who spent any time in Southeast Alaska has a float plane story. I mean, uh, you know, I mean, here's the drill: in summertime, the u- weather's usually pretty good, but in the wintertime, it really gets challenging. And of course. The people in the remote communities, they they want the float planes to come in. And, and so the, the float plane operator, they'll call out from town on the radio. Well, they'll say, well, what's the weather like out there? And, of course, the people on in the remote communities, they'll say, well, it's great because they, they really need the plane. And then, you know, the plane will arrive and he'll look down and go, oh, you'll see white caps across the whole bay. And then the the guy will radio up to the plane, come on, you made it in here last time. It's not that bad. So, you know, after two or three tries, he'll he'll get down. And then, of course, everyone has brought more stuff than he figured, so the plane will be almost overloaded. And then from the west side of Prince of Wales to get the Ketchikan, you have to go through these low passes, okay? And you've got typical overcast and the plane can't go up into the overcast and 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 it's choppy and this pilot told me this once uh, you know he tried three different passes and he was starting to think about being low on fuel and one of his passengers were starting to throw up and it was starting to you know kind of getting towards late afternoon he said I don't know if I'm going to have to land in a native village and wait but then he took one more look at this one low pass, and just as he was about to turn around, he saw a hole in the clouds below him, and he could see the dark water of, of uh, Clarence Straits, and that meant he made it to the other side. And uh, that kind of story is pretty common. And uh, that one sounds like it had a, a good and happy ending. They don't always have happy endings. 
Yeah, no, I mean, uh, uh, one time when when we were fishing in Sumner Straits in the fog, we heard a plane, and we actually heard the plane crash. That was a um, uh, Grum and Goose. Oh, the old Grum and Goose. It was it was a two engine uh, Grum and Goose and um, thick fog trying to land, hit a tide rip or a log or something. Yeah. Well, and to this day, float planes play a very key role because they get people and supplies to places where you virtually can't get there any other way except perhaps by yeah. slow boat. Yeah. So, and I mean, I mean, some of these places where you got to land the plane, very challenging because these these harbors are very very narrow. Oh, absolutely. Well, I remember uh, very graphically being in Point Baker. And a float plane came in, and uh, I was I was out just a little ways where the entrance to the harbor narrows. And if a float plane has what a twenty foot wingspan yeah, yeah. between the trees, it was probably a hundred and twenty feet. So yeah. that's a one yeah. one yeah. to six ratio. And this float plane pilot threaded that entrance perfectly below the tops of the trees and with uh, pretty close to zero room for error. Well, and, I mean, most people in Point Baker know that there was an accident in that same spot in the 60s. You know, he clipped a tree. Yeah. Lots of float plane stories. Lots of float plane stories. And another uh, example of how life in Alaska is close to the edge. <laughs> <laughs> well, oh, wait, one more close to the edge story. Okay. Uh, I lived on this little island just maybe uh, uh, a half mile from the Point Baker floating store as the crow flies. One morning, I needed some milk. Okay, the tide was low, so I couldn't go the usual way through the back channel because there was not enough water. I was not going to go through the woods because the woods were so thick. So I jumped on my outboard and, thinking ill of no one, started heading out around the corner. And all of a sudden, I was in a tide rip. And the tide rip went right up to the beach, and and luckily I got through it. But I could have flipped the boat there, and 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 my epitaph could have been lost going to get milk. <laughs> <laughs> so if we were to continue by map or by chart, uh, tracing our way through these islands. And we're at Point Baker, and we wanted to continue north, maybe following the same route that uh, many of the cruise ships follow. We would go south in Sumner Straits, turn west past Cape Decision. There's a, a classic lighthouse there. And if we were in a cruise ship, we would go north then up Chatham Strait. But if we were to look to the west, we would see the south end of Baranoff Island, Baranoff is a spectacular island, geographically, geologically impressive. And at the south end of it is where all of the water floods and ebbs in and out, making large tide rips, which stir up all kinds of feed and is favored by all kinds of Fish. This is yeah. This is Cape Omni. Cape Omni, and and you know, uh, once again, the trollers found this place in uh, I think 1913. They discovered 
this is where the big Columbia River kings would, would hang out. And so luckily there was this great harbor uh, just a few miles up from the Cape, and this was Port Alexander. And, and you know, in the rowboat days, I've seen pictures of the harbor full of boats and a and hundred tents on the shore. And one early troller, he called it a money-kissed little place. And he said he was walking down the street there, and a gentleman came up to him and said, it's illegal to walk on the streets of Port Alexander sober. I mean, this was a <laughs> this was a little boom town in, in the middle of the wilderness. One uh, observer said in the 30s and 20s, there was a thousand people there in the summertime. There was a couple of couple of stores. There was, a, you know, a fish buyer. Uh, there was a boardwalk with cabins along it. They even had a, a school and a hand crank telephone system. It was it was some place. And then. When uh, when they built Bonneville Dam across the Columbia River and first uh, they closed the gates in 1938, it was like shutting off the spigot. Within two years, the big Columbia River kings basically stopped coming to Port Alexander, and it was just downhill from there. And World War II came along; the most of the men left. And today, Port Alexander, like many of the more remote places is kind of uh, just a few homesteaders and some fishermen and a, a sport fishing lodge whom whose operator luckily has a plane which is able to bring in supplies because I don't think uh, Port Alexander doesn't have ferry service. I don't think it has barge service. Yeah. Right. It, it's yeah. an outpost. It's yeah, an I mean, outpost. And, and that places like this and I think uh, Baranoff Hot Springs, another small community – there, because they don't have ferry service, these guys were dependent on a, a on a on a big freight boat called the EAC. And in nineteen or two thousand fifteen, the EAC hit a rock uh, on the west side of Baranoff and sank. You know, they got the boat up, but it needed tons of work. It was so needed in those two communities and along the Sitka waterfront. Locals raised twenty five thousand dollars just by donations to help get that boat back in business until the insurance money came through. And it is. Now it's back on the route. Yeah, good story. Community knowing what's important and uh, turning to and yeah. getting things going. Yeah, well, uh, just north of Port Alexander, another couple of uh, outposts, uh, Little Port Walter, Port Armstrong. Yeah. Um, they get a lot of rain there. This, is that this right? Is, this is... I think it's tied with some place in Hawaii for the rainiest place in the U.S. I believe it's either 240 or 270 inches of rain a year. Plus, uh, Big Port, where there used to be a herring plant, and, 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 and Port Walter, where there's a fishery station, these are places with steep, steep mountains behind them. I bet you in, in Big Port, where the old herring plant was, because of the mountains, I bet they didn't see the sun from September 15th to March 15th. So you don't see the sun, and then and then the rains come, and the rains turn to snow. And imagine yourself as watchmen in that place. You couldn't even get out. You know, you, you would have to have a strong ability to entertain yourself. Life on the edge. Life on the edge. 
Well, if we were to go north up Chatham Strait with a, a magnificent Baranoff Island to the west, uh, QU on the right, uh, where the waters branch off eastward into Frederick Sound, the south end of Admiralty Island is a place called Point Gardner. And uh, any any uh, any thoughts about Point Gardner, well, that area? Uh, you know, like you say, the, the tide rips there were famous. I mean, John Muir, he traveled up there in a canoe. He left to Wrangell in October with uh you know with two and two canoes with a missionary friend and and when they finally made the crossing from basically cake to point gardner his native paddler said to him i didn't sleep the last 3 nights worrying about getting across here in a canoe and remember this is when before fiberglass before gore-tex before good tents these guys were hardy Totally hardy. Well, Joe, what is a gaff hook? We're so used to these as fishermen, maybe they need to be explained. Imagine this. It's like thinner than a baseball bat, but almost as long, maybe 36, 42 inches. It's you know, it's turned wood. It's got a, It's got a good grip on the handle. And at the end, it has this stainless steel rod bent into a, a hook that comes out at a right angle. And it's a tool used specifically for getting big salmon out of the water. And I mean, an experienced gaffer, a big fish comes to the surface. If he's really good, he can turn the gaff over and use the non-hook side to tap the fish in the head and stun it. And then in a single motion, he can swing down, place that gaff in the gills of the fish so he doesn't, you know, mar the flesh and swing that fish aboard and land it on deck in a single smooth motion. And sometimes the fish will be 40 or 50 pounds. Right. Well, those of us that have been lucky enough to be with very good seasonal trollers, it's it's a uh, motion that's practiced and it's and it's really a apex predator motion of grace. It's so skillful the way they stun the fish. Like you said, fluid motion, arcing aboard, landed fish. And it brings to mind a story. So Point Gardner, uh, if we were to go east just a little ways, is an inlet called Murder Cove. And so named because... Uh, there were a couple of prospectors that were murdered by uh, Tlingits, and then the government uh, handed out remarkably harsh retribution. Another story. The harbor is such that uh, the trollers would favor it, uh, definitely back in the day. And so there's a, another classic book uh, in southeast Alaska called The Chichacos, written by Wayne Short. Heartily recommended. In that book, Wayne tells of being a young troller anchored up in, in Murder Cove. The family had, had a bit of a holding there. They, they had lived there. And uh, so Wayne was keen on getting out to fish this one day. And the weather report looked fairly dubious. 
So he was biding his time, but you know, as as the dawn came up, out he went. And again, to take advantage of the of the exchange of waters there, the tide rips and whatnot, because that's where the fish are. Well, as he was fishing, he caught some. Things were good, weather wasn't bad, but he looked off to the south and saw a black line out on the horizon. And about the time that squall and those winds kicked up, the tide also changed into an ebb. So you had water against wind, and the seas kicked up horrifically. And he said that in in the book, in Chichacos, he writes that... uh, an unusually large, a rogue wave came up and slooshed over his boat, knocking his trolling poles in the water and knocking Wayne into the seas. So Wayne was thinking, well, this is it, when he was aware that there was a troller coming up on him. Wayne swam as hard as he could to grab a hold of the fenders, but he missed on a swell. And as the boat and Wayne came down and up, the next thing he knew is that Fred swung a gaff into Wayne's shoulder and (laughs) hauled him aboard. (laughs) Landed him on the deck. (laughs) Saved his life, landed him like a huge king salmon. Saved his life. His wife, Gertrude, patched him up, and uh, Wayne was able to write about the story and live to be an august age. Ah, the many uses of a gas gas hook. If we were to continue north uh, up Chatham Strait... uh, One of the waterways goes out west in Peril Strait. If we were to go north further, we would come to another inlet, Tenakee Inlet, and a place called Tenakee Springs. Oh, now, this is really an unusual place because unlike, you know, Myers Chuck and Point Baker Port Protection, where basically you're just surrounded by tall trees— this this whole community is spread out on this south-facing gravel beach. So everyone's on the water, and plus they, when the sun comes out, they feel it, and, and it's even flat enough. There's no cars, but there's four-wheelers that, that get around. And, and like many places, it originally started with good fishing, and, and they even had a cannery there. And uh, there was a logging camp nearby, and there was one bar. This was Rosie's Bar. Rosie was a Chinese gal. Uh, I think her husband worked in the cannery. She had a little bar, and I was asking her about those days. And all she could say was, why they always break my furniture? Because what would happen was the loggers would get in there and the fishermen would get in there, and they'd get in an argument about something, and pretty soon they'd be breaking Rosie's furniture. But uh, today, Tenneke, I think there's maybe 65 people there, and, you know, one of the challenges is they're one of the few outports that serve by ferry. But um, Alaska ferries are getting old. State government is uh, doesn't have as much money they used to because the oil revenues are down. 
And so their main ferry, they, they hauled it out to do some work on it and realized it didn't need just a paint job and some minor fixes. It needed $15 million worth of work, and they didn't have the money. So that ferry is off the run, and, and that's a big blow for that community. And another issue is um, if you have 10 students in a school, Alaska, the state of Alaska will pay for a teacher and pay for a teacher's housing. Well, when the population shrunk a little bit, so they went below that 10, they lost their teacher, and then they had to scramble and come up with an alternate plan. And so they got something they called the the school became the independent learning center where they were doing some distance learning by internet, but, you know, they're just trying to make make do the best they can uh, with what they had. What's neat about Teneke is they've got this hot springs and they built a building over it and uh, they've got um, they've got men's hours and they've got women's hours and they got a little changing room outside and it's basically the, the community center. And there's a great mural on the wall of it outside showing a bear and a raccoon and I think a deer all sitting in the hot tub together. <laughs> but when I was there, I think it was like four years ago, townspeople were really excited because, you know, they knew they knew they were having troubles with the ferry. But the float plane service had just gotten a new plane. It was a I believe it was a Cessna 206 Turbo on floats, which was an eight-passenger plane, just a super plane. And the whole town was down there when it when it flew in for the first time. And I think one of the things that impressed them so much was not only was there cargo in the plane, but then they opened up hatches in the big floats and started pulling out packages from Amazon in the floats. <laughs> Current snapshot of life in in Southeast yeah. Alaska yeah. and some of yeah. these outposts. Yeah, no, plane planes are really important. They certainly are. Well, so if we were to continue the uh, the exploration northbound, we'd get up into icy straits, and uh, if we were to go west, there's a couple of little communities out there that are notable: Elfin Cove. And Pelican? Yeah, I mean, and both of these places evolved because there were great anchorages next to really good fishing. I mean, uh, Elephant Cove was originally called the Gunk Hole. It's kind of an East Coast uh, name for a really, you know, a, a little hole-in-the-wall fishing port where it's, uh, you know, a good anchorage and very protected. And, um, you know, uh, years went on, uh, great fishing spot. Um, they decided, oh, we can uh, we, we can apply for a post office. So um, they applied for a post office, and they got a gal to uh, volunteer to be postmistress. But she had one condition. She said, I'm not going to be postmistress of a place called the Gunk Hole. you got to come up with a different name. So um, her boyfriend's or her friend's fishing boat was called the Elfin. So they called it Elfin Cove. <laughs> and um, and then, you know, next over and down uh, Lysiansky a little bit is Pelican. Again, started off as a fish buying town. They, they, you know, Pelican even had a cold storage, and which was a big employer. And then, of course, fishing slowed down a bit. And, um, and so um, both of these places, the main kind of activity now is sports fishing in the summertime. And I went on the Pelican website, and the first thing you see is, we need you. 
and they're appealing to entrepreneurs, people who want to live out in the Alaska wilderness and bring their own business with them. And, and they had some suggestions. They said, you could have a little diving business or you could start a microbrewery. And then there was something that was particularly Alaskan, building salvage. Because in a lot of these places, there's, there's old buildings that can be salvaged for, uh, for lumber. Yeah, well, I've yet to uh, make it to Pelican, but uh, when I think of Pelican, and many would be in the same boat, uh, they have a rather famous boardwalk. Is that right? Oh, yeah. There's the, I mean, the, the harbor sides are so steep that uh, this, it, they had to build a boardwalk for people to walk around, and all, all the houses are basically attached to the boardwalk. Yeah. yeah. Well, there but, you, but, you know, all these towns from Myerschuk to Point Baker to Pelican, they're full of characters, and they're full of, uh, they're full of stories and things that you wouldn't, wouldn't normally happen in a regular town. Like, like here's one. It's like Point Baker, the guy who ran the store, he lived on a tugboat. Okay, and he lived in the hold of the tugboat, big space down there. They put lights down there. They put they carpeted the walls and carpeted the floor. They had furniture down there. It was very comfortable. And uh, in those days, they had regular boats coming once a week from the cannery to buy fish at Point Baker. Well, uh, one day this guy got a call on the radio and said, "Hey, Earl, we got a big problem. We need your help." says, our tender can't make it out to Point Baker this week. And you got a big run of fish coming, and you got an ice machine there, but we've got no way of getting the fish to town. Would you consider using your tugboat? We'll pay you a lot of money. Uh-huh. So he hauled that furniture out of the hold and put it on the dock and took four tons of ice and left the carpet in there. And filled that hold with, uh, with with fish and took them to town. And those fish in that carpeted fish hold, they had the best ride to town of, of, of any tender in Alaska. <laughs> Excellent example of uh, daring do, making, uh, making hay when the sun shines, when opportunities present. And uh, I have to wonder if he kept the carpets. <laughs> Well, uh, so this has been a, a little bit of a, a storied journey through some of the smaller communities, some of the smaller outposts, looking into how they were, how they came to be. And uh, Joe, I want to thank you again for uh, coming in and uh, sharing some of these perspectives and joining us on on a little bit of an exploratory up north. If uh, if somebody is totally intrigued with uh, what you've got to offer, how would they find your work? Oh, I just just go to Amazon and, um, you know, Alaska Blues is a really good one. Or um, Runaways on the Inside Passage, if you like, young adult fiction. But I definitely get my map, my illustrated map. It's got It's just got all kinds of great information and pictures on it. Yeah. Well, Joe, I want to thank you for uh, joining us today and uh, sharing what uh, what is so rich for you and undoubtedly rich to hear and participate in for, with our listeners. Thank you, listeners, for joining in. And if you like this, uh, please talk it up and share it through the modern traditional means. And until next time, on we go. Thank you, Dan. Okay, Joe, it's a pleasure. 